Hey, hey, what's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Refum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So, I have the pleasure tonight of welcoming back Dong Zo to the show. What's going on there, Dong? Very good. How are you? It's great to be back. It's great to have you back there, Dong. And I know, based on what I'm seeing here in the chat, people are uh, really digging having you back on. There's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of anticipation here. <laughs> um, so I just want to give a little background on Dong. For those of you that you don't know Dong, he has a PhD in chemistry and worked for several pharmaceutical companies in various therapeutic areas, including anti-inflammatory, cancer, pain management, and anti-infectious diseases. He developed his first interest in marine invertebrates when he was working as a postdoc at the University of Virginia. He has been in the aquarium hobby since he was in college, and he got into the saltwater hobby in 2004 after setting up his first marine tank for a Nemo and after he discovered the Boston Reefer Society. Yeah, let's go Boston Reefer Society. About 10 years ago, he co-founded his first company on drug discovery. Soon after that, he was able to combine his passion for coral and his experience in the pharmaceutical industry, and co-founded a new company, EcoBioMarine. This company focused on aquaculture, coral for drug discovery, and bone grafting. His current company, AcroGarning Inc., Inc., was then founded to hold the intellectual properties and to study coral farming. AcroGarden is now his primary focus. The company produces aquaculture coral, mainly SPS for the hobby, and, and I did pay a visit to Dong um, a few weeks ago, and... I saw firsthand once again what a uh, talented uh, coral grower Dong is, for sure. Thank you. Um, but before we get into this conversation with Dong, I want to thank the sponsors for the live stream, both Folkery Supply and Ecotech Marine. Really appreciate them supporting the live stream, and also appreciate all you folks out there tuning in and supporting the show. Please spread the word. Hit that like button if you haven't done so already. And while you're at it, subscribe to the channel. Why not, right? That'll be uh, awesome. As per usual, uh, comments and questions via the chat are always welcome. We have a whole bunch of topics there, Dong, tonight, right? We got uh, we got a lot of topics yep. on the uh, agenda, but uh, we can certainly pivot and take questions from the viewers or follow-up questions, what have you. Um, Adam Moore, Dong, exclamation point, Keith's best guest, could listen to this guy all day. <laughs> Thank you. Um yeah. All right. So, Dong, I thought the a good way to start this live stream would be talking about, you know, the timeline for starting an SPS dominant mm -hmm. tank, right? In terms of setting it up, the cycling process, what uh, and, you know, I think there's a lot of perceptions out there in terms of timing and and you know how long it takes for a tank to mature, when to add corals, when to add fish. You know, so, I mean, let's kind of start with, you know, the dry rock versus the live rock mm -hmm. um, options. And, and these days it's really kind of dry rock is is more of a, um, you know, that's that's really kind of going to be the way that most folks have to go because there's not a lot, a lot of live rock mm -hmm. out there. There are some live rock vendors that um, are available. You could order online and I guess you can go to a local fish store and pick up some live rock if they're cooking some rock in their uh, facilities. But um so, you know, let's let's just assume that dry rock is the only option. How how do you approach conditioning or cycling dry rock? What's your process? Um, so I think that uh, uh, in the long run, uh, dry rock and live rock 
probably won't make too much of a difference when a tank is matured. Uh, but the initial setup could be quite different. So uh, I remember back maybe like 15 years ago, uh, back then the dry rock is quite different from the dry rock we have today. Back then, and then the, the manufacturer of dry rock, basically they build the dry rock out of cement. Uh, they they use the Portland, uh, Portland cement, something like that, and mixed with a lot of uh, aragonite, like a seashell, and then build these uh, interesting structures. And then they put them into seawater and to cure them for like six months to a year. But that process apparently is no longer exists today. Well, I'm not talking about the, the Tampa Bay because that's a different process. They put it in the ocean and then a rock come out of the ocean is already live rock. So I'm talking about a dry rock you can buy from store shelf. So the dry rock these days is basically pretty raw. That's the word that I think is the best describe it. It's pretty raw. Pretty, pretty raw means that is all the chemicals uh, actually, in the cement, there are a lot of harmful chem chemicals in there. Those chemicals are not being cured or bleached out or actually being settled. So when you purchase dry rock, well, actually, there's an exception, micro rock. So micro rock actually is a land-based uh, ancient reef rock. So those rocks are not built by uh, like the cement and dirt those kind of things, those rocks are actually natural. So uh, if you use micro rock, so basically that uh, save you a lot of headache. So, but still, when you get a dry rock, the first thing to do is put them in a big Rubbermaid top and just garden hose it down. That's the first thing to do. You have to garden hose it down. You never know what this rock is exposed to. So um, just- yeah. To spray it with a garden hose or soak it actually yep. in tap water? Oh, actually spray it first because oh. that you can see spider, ant, <laughs> dead bees all coming flying off this rock, seriously. So, and also it's a lot of dust. The dust is you want to uh, spray it off the rock. Don't worry about RODI, nothing. Just a garden hose, spray them. Spray them clean and then you put this rock in a Rubbermaid top and soak it into tap water, in tap water for like at least uh, two or three weeks to a month. What happened is that uh, there are some like sodium hydroxide, potassium hydroxide, that uh, is part of the component of the cement. They will gradually leach out into the water. So uh, this process actually is very important because that I, I have seen many, many occasions when people just start out their dry rock, they bought the dry rock, they put them in the reef tank and start cycling. And then they will have a, this interesting phenomenon is that their pH is very high, but the alkalinity is very low. Hmm. So yeah, when they put it in the salt water, so there is a relationship between the pH and alkalinity, despite they're not linear, but there is a relationship there. So you won't see that uh, your, your alkalinity of your water is probably about eight or nine in this uh, water to kill the rock, but your pH is shot through the roof, like 11, 12, something like that. That is part of the uh, hydroxide in those dry rocks uh, slowly leaching out. So it's very important to hose them down and then soak them into just 
tap water what, in a what, big tub. What about, uh, I see Economical Reefers made a comment, started with dry rock, cleaned bleach, and dried it. Uh, bleach necessary? Uh, muriatic acid necessary? Uh, it depends. So first of all, I don't think it's really necessary. And uh, But only in the occasion, those rocks actually being used before. So, you, uh, for example, that on Craigslist, you see somebody has a tank breakdown, and then they line up their rock on the driveway, take a photo. Yeah. Okay. So, and then when you get those rocks, the rocks are bone dry. And then they were sitting on the driveway with a tons of crap covering it. Now, <laughs> in this situation, you need to uh, use uh, uh, bleach as well as, uh, like, um, well, citric acid. You do not have to use those very harmful acids that end up getting your eye or that kind of thing. Use citric acid. Very mild and also it's reef safe, sort of. And then use citric acid to just melt out uh, the first layer. And that's all and the uh, you, dead organic matter? Yeah, all the dead organic matter. And yeah. then your garden hose is your best friend. <laughs> After you treat it with acid, hose it down. What about a power, what about a power washer? Uh, power washer works, but then the thing is that uh, power washer has a, such a big force on it, so your rock probably flying around in your lawn. <laughs> You're knocking bits <laughs> off. Yeah, I think the garden hose is perfectly fine. So just hose it off and then soak them in uh, tap water and then uh, uh, let the let all the remaining organic material just decay. And so, but well. Uh, well, yeah, well, will that uh, help um, remove a lot of the phosphate that's inside of that uh, rock? I mean, you know, I think oh, yes. that's um, that's yes. a big complaint, I think. And that's that's something that I've experienced firsthand is al algae issues with dry rock. Mm -hmm. You know, um, what I did with with dry rock, <clears throat> I had this uh, Carib Sea life rock recently, yep. about, a, about a year ago, and maybe it was a year and a half ago. And I um, did not garden hose it. I, you know, I... I bought it from a um, a local fish store that was actually mm -hmm. soaking it in some um, some salt water. They had a system set up. I think the place was in New Hampshire. I can't remember the name of the local fish store. And um, <clears throat> but I took it back to my house and I dried it out. You know, I didn't um, I didn't really think that there was going to be too much um, bacteria biodiversity on that rock because I think they had been soaking it for a couple of weeks in the, in their system. Mm -hmm. So I put it in a uh, hundred gallon Rubbermaid tub and, um, you know, so not, not in fresh water. I put it in, in the Rubbermaid tub and I just, um, did 10% weekly water changes with, you know, established tank water and I dosed bacteria along the way. Is that another way to go about doing it or is that, um, kind of jumping the gun a little bit? Uh, I, I think that is perfectly fine. Uh, for example, that uh, when you're carrying this dry rock, put some bacteria in there, it doesn't hurt. It probably helps. Um, but on the other hand, that the decaying uh, on those rocks, there will be a sufficient amount of bacteria on it uh, to colonize it because bacteria really grows very rapidly. So, uh, yeah, because of those, those bacteria in a bottle is pretty inexpensive. Right. It doesn't hurt. Just pour them in. Uh, maybe that uh, uh, get, get the rock ready maybe several days earlier or a little bit better. So I, because this is a hobby, uh, as a scientist, I always look at things as we need to be scientifically correct. We need to uh, research all this rationale. But I always keep reminding myself that uh, we are in a hobby. 
when we are in a hobby, we need to enjoy the enjoy the process. And also, the thing is that if you feel like pouring several bottles of bacterial in on the rock, and actually psychologically, it helps. Yep. And well, uh, yeah, because it helps, it's worth doing it because it's a hobby. So we don't have to drill down to actually uh, maybe that we spend ten dollar for this bottle and then uh, buy us two more days of uh, two day less to cure the rock. No, we don't have to go through that. When we feel like it, we pour a bottle of the bacteria in the rock, and I feel much better. That's worth it. <laughs> so you're, you're talking about uh, denitrifying bacteria for a, yes, a new rock, yes. right? We're not talking about mm -hmm. bottled bacteria for an established um, reef tank. Uh, actually, I think that many of these uh, bacteria for established tank, they're just denitrification bacteria. There's nothing special about it. So that's uh, we we can get into more detail about that later on. Yeah. So um, I think most of them are just just denitrification bacteria. Seriously, unless that the vendor has a special label, uh, just like the the can be clean, the can be clean. It says uh, it does not contain astromycin, succinate, or phosphate. So unless the bottle saying that it does not contain denitrification bacteria, but it's bacterial. Yeah, maybe some. Don, else what are you that. doing with yeah. ChemiClean? Uh, well, <laughs> actually, <yeah. laughs> uh, this ChemiClean, I actually tried to uh, uh, use it to dip a coral to see if it actually helps. As a dip. Uh, that, that, yeah, as a dip. Yeah. And I can tell you that it does absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, ChemiClean is something we might want to talk about uh, yes. later on. Yeah, you got, so you, got that, some, uh, you got some props there. Yep, and I actually use it for uh, unintended use, so I get a negative result. So yeah, it's okay, no problem. Yeah, it's worth trying. <laughs> so all right, um, we're basically we've got the rock soaking in tap water for a few weeks. What's your next step mm -hmm. after that? Uh, and then that you uh, after you soak it in tap water, and then you you just soak them in salt water. So preferably, well, yeah, if you already have an established tank. I will use the uh, the water from water change yep. from your established tank to soak the new rock. And if you don't have established tank, well, it just uh, make a salt um, um, sea water and then just soak it in there. How long? For matter of fact, go ahead. Actually, uh, I, one thing is that uh, since that we are in Boston, we run actually the ocean. If you really feel like it, you can go to the ocean and get some ocean water to soak that rock. Perfectly fine. So, uh, but don't expect any miracle, but it's basically save you a couple of dollars and you got to enjoy the looking at the ocean so, <laughs> when you go collect the water. So any salt water will do and then just soak it. And then after you soak it at least about one or two weeks, uh, it basically is, uh, it's just like a, a cleaning uh, process before you put it in the tank to cycle. What what about um, what about adding shrimp or another food source while you're soaking in the in the salt water? Is that <clears throat> something that you do, or is there another thing you do? No, I don't think it's necessary. You don't think it's necessary. So, yep, it's just a cleaning process. It's not a curing process. Okay. So the basic idea is that we want to wash the rock as much as possible before you go into a tank for cycling. So that is, yeah, and you can use whatever creative methods. I, uh, I've seen people that actually boil the rock. Well, if you have a big enough pot, that works. I'm so sorry, they, 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 they do what, uh, Dong? 
uh, they put the dry rot in those uh, lobster pots. Oh, oh. Boil them. Yeah. Well, kill off everything. And so uh, that all, all this kind of process, <laughs> well, when you're having fun with that, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> so you basically just try to clean the rock as much as possible before you put it into a tank to start the, uh, uh, the cycling process. And now actually I want to talk about one thing I saw in China many years ago. I went back there, look at their, their uh, aquaculture uh, effort and the coral, uh, not coral farm, but the pet shops. One thing I saw very common is that uh, they actually get those rocks from the ocean, and, but they're bone dry, they're not live rock, but they just harvest the, the rock from the ocean. Of course, it's pretty dirty, those rocks. So uh, they have this big vat. They put the rock under the sun with salt water in it. And then they want the rock to cover with algae. Hmm. They even have a term for that. So I don't know how to translate into English, but they have a term for this process. They put this uh, dry rock harvest from the ocean, and then they put in a big vat with seawater under the sun. Hmm. Encourage algae growth. Interesting. And then when, when those algae is covering the rock, they go there and they pull the algae off, and then they start the carrying process. So they, they, their idea is that is to get rid of as much nutrient as possible out of those rock surface. Interesting. And by uh, allowing them to grow algae, uh, it's a good way uh, to clean those surface. So they're uh, kind of getting the ugly stage out of the way early. Yes, yes. And I have seen many pristine tank over there. In Asia, a lot of tanks are absolutely pristine. So uh, the, they, they scrub the tank so clean. Sometimes I think, are you sure this tank is one year old? It's just absolutely beautifully clean, especially the Japanese tank. Oh, those are just, it's just like, wow. So they all go through this process. Their rock, they treat the rock actually as a very precious commodity. So they treat the rock just like coral. So they want to cure this rock as good as possible. And those rocks, go into a reef tank and they keep clean for a long, long time. How, um, how can we replicate that as hobbyists in our tanks? I mean, should we put the rock in and just blast them with the lights for a while and then take them out and scrub the algae off that rock? Sir? Actually, that a uh, very good question. Actually, that uh, go down to um, one of my uh, interesting uh, viewpoint about how to cycling a tank. So I would recommend turn the light on during, a, during the cycle. So because that, uh, the cycling of the tank is basically cycling of the rock. So what you want to do is that you want the bacteria to establish on the rock. You want the, all the garbage to get removed from the rock. And a lot of this uh, algae, even the microalgae, they don't grow without the light. And there is an uh, interesting uh, phenomenon I have seen is that some guy cured the rock. They said, oh, I'm going through this cycle. So in the dark, after two months, it tests nitrate, ammonia every day. Wonderful. The <laughs> tank is pristinely clean. Now if you turn on the light, voila, all the algae shows up. <laughs> 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 so that means that what happens if you start turn on the light uh, from day one? Just let the whole ecosystem try to establish themselves in the condition they're going to be under for the long term. Right. Yeah, that's the idea about curing the rock. 
cycling the tank with the light on instead of light off. So if you have uh, LEDs, no reason mm -hmm. to turn down the intensity at the beginning? No, just a uh, full blast. Actually, it's not really full blast. For example, that you want to run an AB Plus program. Yep. You have the beautiful Radeon fixture on it. But don't put them on, on the shelf. Hang them up, program them, let them shine on this dry rock. Just as if that is a full-blown reef tank. So all the life form, including lots of photosynthesis life form, will start to establish as the way it's supposed to be for a long run under this condition. So what if um, what if you have uh, there's a lot of um, you know aquascaping um, mm -hmm. that's going on these days in terms of the um, the negative space aquascaping. There's um, you know minimalistic type of aquascapes where you glue things mm -hmm. together and you form very intricate um, you know structures that have a lot of swim throughs and arches and all that stuff. You're you're basically taking glue and mortar and putty and whatnot and you're sticking all that stuff together in a uh, in a tank what what what's your advice with uh, that sort of situation right i mean should you be um can you do that and then um once you kind of hit hit the tank at first with all the uh, the light and you've got all this algae that i'm assuming you're going to need to take the rock out and scrub it to get that algae off or how do you get that algae off do you just throw a whole bunch of herbivores in there actually there is a trick urchin urchin sea urchins yep sea urchin now that uh, uh think about it this way is that you build this beautiful aquascape and, and uh, you can use all the reef space, cement, whatever thing that uh, to glue them together. And now you have the light of, uh, at its uh, intended intensity and a life cycle. And now all the algae start to show up. So instead of using a toothbrush, go in there, throw in a bunch of urchin. Now this urchin, uh, urchin uh, uh, sometimes is very pesky because they carry stuff. They mess up your your coral frag, but at this stage, when you say when, you when the, no coral, when you say uh, carry stuff, oh, meaning moving stuff around. Yeah, the yeah. urchin. Normally, yeah. that uh, we don't want to put many urchin in the established tank, right? Because they carry your a thousand dollar frag, your home right. <laughs> go to the cave, right? <laughs> <laughs> but at this stage, when you're cycling the tank, and of course that uh, you want to test the ammonia and nitrate, so uh, just let the algae grow, let it grow. Let it grow into a forest, whatever thing. And as long as that uh, the, your, your ammonia drops to zero and your, you do some water change and your nitrate also reduced. And then you're looking at this uh, forest of algae. No problem. Now is a good time to throw in maybe 20 urchins in there. What kind of, you what kind of urchins do you like? Uh, actually, the pincushion urchin. Pincushion. Uh, uh, not those kind of fancy stuff. Actually, there's the Murphy's Law that the, the, uh, the prettier the urchin, the less job it does. <laughs> so, and uh, what I found is that uh, I actually have this urchin uh, that I get from a diver from Florida. And then uh, uh, they just like whitish pink. There's not much color to it. But those is a beast by molding down um, algaes. So <laughs> uh, one time there's a guy actually got two urchin in his tank. And his back wall is all covered with algae. The next morning, he woke up, got two mowing strips <laughs> of the two <laughs> urchin on the back. So an uh, urchin is your best friend at this moment. So uh, don't worry about that, uh, uh, how ugly the algae, how much algae covering this uh, negative aqua space. Uh, uh, 
So well, well, put your urchin in, mold it down. Well, will the urchins uh, eat every type of algae in the tank, including bryopsis? Actually, I don't know. I, I'm not very sure about that. But basically, the urchin seems like pretty good. Because sometimes the biopsis is, is very hard to ID uh, unless you really look underneath the microscope. Uh, but on the other hand, so the, uh, according to what I've seen so far, so during this cycling process, most of the algae just regular hair algae. Right. Yep. So, uh, so you, you may have um, uh, one or two patch of biopsis there, and now you just grab your bone cutter and just scrape them off. Right. So if the algae urchin doesn't touch, scrape them off. Yes, you're a you're an advocate of manual remover for biopsies, as am I. Oh yeah, I uh, mm -hmm. I, I do not uh, like to put in uh, chemicals. I know um, a lot of folks believe fluconazole is um, is a good way to get rid of. I mean, I guess it does get rid of biopsies, and and mm -hmm. you know the question is, it's an antifungal type of um, um, element. So, yep, does it do any harm to the microbiome? <laughs> you know, then you get into that sort of stuff. So actually, that brings up an interesting um, uh, topic about uh, fluconazole. So uh, the fluconazole is marketed as an antifungal uh, medicine. It's a very good example to showing you that most of the drug, they're not single targeted. That means that they, they, they're not just doing one thing. They do multiple things. For example, this antifungal drug can kill your algae. That is a good demonstration that, yeah, besides you go to kill the fungus, you also kill something else. Collateral damage. Which, exactly, which means that actually being from a drug discovery background, I can tell you that majority of the drug, actually most of them are multi-targeted. That's why we talk about therapeutic windows. So basically, if you, uh, you kill the fun fungus a little bit better than killing the algae, yeah, that this drug go, for, go treat it as an antifungal reagent. So basically, uh, most of the chemical, Medicine, including antibiotic, especially antibiotic. When you put in your tank, it does not just kill one or two bacteria. You kill them all. A lot of them. A lot of side effects. Side effect is associated with every single drugs. That means that you put some chemical in your tank, you do more than one thing. Something is desirable. Many things are not desirable. <laughs> that is the nature of drugs. Is, is this a good time to talk about chemiclean? <laughs> sure. <laughs> or am I getting ahead of our, our, uh, our little no, agenda no, no, here? No, no, no. Yeah, on a live stream, you can talk about anything we want. Yeah. Just let it flow. Yeah. So uh, chemiclean is an interesting thing. It's antibiotic. Despite that, you try to tell you it's not antibiotic. Whatever labeling over there is pretty misleading. But um, it's an antibiotic that it works pretty well on cyanide. So... That, that, is, um, uh, that, that, that has been used as a red slime remover. So, well, um, how useful is it? It's pretty effective against the uh, cyanobacteria. But now we come back to the question is that cyanobacteria is always in the water column. Always. Expect, yeah, always, always. So you cannot eradicate them all. And that back to another important thing why we shouldn't uh, so, bombara. Yeah, go ahead. So, oh, so all right. If if you're using ChemiClean to get rid of the cyanobacteria, but if mm -hmm. it's always in the water column and it can come yep. back if you're not solving the root source of the issue, how yes. how how effective is the? Uh, are you are you really carpet bombing your tank with uh, ChemiClean to get rid of the cyanobacteria? I mean, or is it always going to be some left over? 
Uh, uh, you cannot kill them all. Can't kill them that all. That means that, yeah, you cannot kill them all. So uh, the, uh, no matter how, even your trip can be clean uh, in your tank every day, you cannot kill them all. <laughs> all the antibiotics, none of them be able to kill them all. That is where the resistance come from. Hmm. So assuming you have 10,000 bacteria, 10,000 bacteria of that species, let's say 10,000 uh, cyanos, you kill uh, nine, uh, well, nine hundred ninety nine blah, blah, blah. Point is, is one left All you to need propagate. Yeah, to propagate. Just like the movie Fifth Element. <laughs> <laughs> so you got one single cell, then you can duplicate the whole thing. So basically, um, uh, you, you cannot use clean or any other antibiotic to eradicate. Eradicate means that you completely wipe them out, no matter how you carpet bomb, bomb them. No, it doesn't. And that that's why all this resistance started to show up. So maybe uh, in the future that we have uh, some cyanobacterial that is not responsible, I don't know, response to chemically. Probably we already have that. In some tanks, Seriously. in some tanks. Yeah, in some tanks. Some of the cyanobacteria just won't get affected by clean at all. So clean is uh, basically more like a cosmetic surgery. So what happened is that, oh yeah, in-law is coming, your girlfriend is coming, you really <laughs> want your tank to look pristine. Yeah, go ahead, bomb it with clean. And then after one week after they left, and then you're dealing with all this mess. But uh, there is one important thing that I really don't recommend using clean a lot is uh, many people already know that after you bomb your tank with um, clean, your cyanide disappear and dino take over. And then a dino is even worse than cyanide. Yeah. So, <laughs> Let me interject a comment from uh, yeah. Andy Bauma. Uh, he says, it seems like the clean removes it from the sand bed and allows other microorganisms to take over their niche. On the sand bed, there's always some in the water column. Do you agree with that? Yes. Actually, that even worse is about coral farming the egg cracks. So uh, uh, for a coral farmer, and uh, we see, uh, frequently see the cyanobacteria covering the egg cracks. And then when, if you bomb it, the egg crack will can be clean, and then it's the dino gonna take over your egg crack. You take over, basically after the, the cyano is dead, whatever surface, Regardless, it's on the sand, it's on the rock, on your egg crack, on your wall, on your utensil, on your fork, uh, spoon. Well, then the, another species of bacteria or another species of whatever, we're going to take over that space. Because you just vacant this hotel and somebody else comes like take over. It's like a domino effect. Exactly. And, th and then the thing is that after you eradicate your dino, then your dino come back. <laughs> so what, what would be your best advice for somebody that, um, you know, has, let's say they have a, a, um, a plague proportion of cyano that it's just mm -hmm. really bad that it's covering all the sand, it's covering all the rocks. Um, what would be your advice to that person in terms of trying to get that under control? Uh, first of all, is that, uh, how much tolerance that person has for, looking at ugly cyanobacterials. <laughs> so if you have a patch that big and in your 180 gallon tank, somewhere sitting behind a rock, just ignore it. 
So uh, blow it away. It's everywhere. Blow it away. Yeah, blow just blow it away, and then uh, Sy- or, or, or just pretend or, you're not there. Or siphon it yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Or siphon it out. Siphon it out. Actually, it's really uh, um, effective. Actually, when you siphon the uh, the cyanobacteria out, you do not remove completely remove them. You just remove the top layer. So the there's plenty of cyanobacteria still on that surface, mm. occupying that surface and preventing dino to take over, for example. So you siphon them out. Yeah, that's a good idea. Or um, if siphoning is really uh, too much labor intensive, you can always get a little power head. Get a little power head, go into the tank and blow them away. So one one note about that, Dong. I was doing that, you know, on my display tank that had has uh, cyano, and 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 my my cyano has gotten better ever since I removed my sand bed. But um, what oh, yeah. what uh, what I what I was <laughs> also doing was blowing the cyano off of the sand bed and disturbing that sand bed, and and my corals weren't happy in that display tank. You know, it just seemed like I was mm-hmm. um, unearthing or or um, disturbing some stuff in that sand bed that my SPS weren't really terribly happy with. And once I got all the sand out of the uh, the tank gradually and mm-hmm. didn't have any sand bed to blow around, it seemed like my corals started to uh, to rebound and, and not get as pissed off. Yeah, that, that actually is pretty common. So what happened is that uh, at the bottom of the sand bed, there's hydrogen sulfide. Because the bacteria that are living at the bottom of the sand bed um, there's uh, the place where the oxygen pool place. So the bacteria will use sulfate as the oxygen source. So the byproduct is hydrogen sulfide. So when you disturb the sand bed, you release the hydrogen sulfide. So the coral get not going to be very happy and your fish is not going to be happy. And uh, because all you take just a very small amount. So you probably won't smell it, but it's definitely in the water. So in that case, that then you can see, yeah, the coral is not very, uh, it looks a little bit upset. And that has also, doesn't, that can happen if you disrupt your detritus. If you have a lot of them, you're removing them, and that the similar effect can happen. Oh, so if, if you have a lot of detritus, it's building up and building yeah. up, and you disturb that mm-hmm. detritus, then that can have the same type of effect in terms of releasing yes. um, some toxins or hydrogen or okay hydrogen sulfide sulfide. yeah yeah so yeah i mean it is then very important i would think to stay on top of detritus removal yes actually that that's where the bare bottom tank really come into really um easy to maintain so what happened is that if you combine the gyre gyre the gyre flow with the bare bottom tank what happens is that you can find out your Detroit is actually collecting at the corner of the tank. They all get blown over there. You just go uh, using a turkey baster to suck them up and done. So it's like gathering all the trash to a corner and so you can just siphon it out. Yeah, you know, I mean, what's been effective for me in terms of my battle against cyano is to um, take the power head, go around, you know, every other day. I do this every other day to the rocks. I blow the rocks with a power head. If there's um, some cyano, a little cyano on the bottom of the glass, I blow that. And um, yeah, so I get that all into the water column and so my mechanical filtration helps remove it. And then um, I also have this marine land um, fluidized, I guess it's like a water polisher, like a pump that I put uh-huh, inside yeah. the tank. And so mm-hmm. that'll take in mm-hmm. some of the, uh, you know, the cyano and other stuff that's um, floating around in there, the large particulate matter, and we'll filter that stuff out. 
And then um, I will also siphon whatever kind of like detritus is left over in the bottom. And, you know, it sounds like it's a pain in the ass. And, you know, it is, it is, uh, you know, it's work like every, every other day I'm doing a lot, you know, like 15, 20 minutes of work, but I just feel like it, uh, you know, I am kind of slowly winning that battle. And I think that, um, manual removal and, and, um, you know, just trying to stay on top of that accumulating detritus has helped. Yeah. And also water change, water changes. Yeah. Water change actually helps a lot. <clears throat> the reason for that is that, uh, when you're seeing a lot of cyano build up, there must be a problem somewhere, right? Cyano is feeding on something. So those things actually are probably in your water column. Well, most likely in the water column because they, they disperse everywhere. That's where uh, your cyano actually grabbing all these nutrients from the water column. So do a water change. And do a water change that will reduce the nutrients and then reduce the cyano. So Cyano is a bacteria, right? Cyanobacteria Cyanobacteria is a bacteria. Yeah. It's not, mm -hmm. um, you know, so talk about dung in terms of you, you talked about water changes and nutrient removal. Is, is that um, something that's always going to be effective in terms of fighting cyano if it is a bacterial issue versus a nutrient issue? Actually, uh, they're the same issue. So the cyano show up because that you have excess nutrients. So uh, the saying on the internet saying that, well, that uh, when your nutrients too poor, cyanide show up, that's not the case at all. That is putting the cart in front of the horse. So uh, because when there's a lot of cyanide there, they actually take out the measurable phosphate and nitrate from your water column. But it does not mean that your water column is really clean. No, it doesn't. It, Actually, cyanobacteria also feeding on lots of organic compounds that we cannot test. And water change is the only way to remove them because we cannot test them. But if you see cyano, I guarantee you uh, those organic compounds in the water column that is feeding your cyano. So the bottom line is that it's not just nitrogen and phosphorus. The nitrate phosphate is not the only thing feeling you uh, is feeding the cyano. Yeah, that's a very important thing. Yeah, you know, because conventional wisdom is all right. I've got like elevated nitrates and phosphates, and mm -hmm. I've got a cyano issue. So, all right, I need to get those phosphates and nitrates down, right? So uh, I did mm -hmm. that in this, uh, you know, situation. I got my nitrates and phosphates almost down to zero. Um, but what happened was that my SPS, some of my SPS, got light. Right. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. they faded. So it, that's not necessarily the solution in that case. Nope. That's not the solution at all. And for a matter of fact, when you look at SPS, the biology, uh, on the surface of um, like Acropora, they actually um, also many, many other coral as well. There is uh, nitrate and phosphate transporter. That means that they're actively taking in nitrate and phosphate from the water column. This is a well-studied uh, biology. So this is well-established and no question asked. So that means your coral does require phosphate and nitrate. They have the uh, transporter, just like this little arm. They're grabbing them from the water column. So to utilize them as their nutrient. So the coral that require phosphate and nitrate, and that's well-established. Yep. 
Um, so um, yeah, then then probably people will ask, well, what about the ref field ratio, right? <laughs> you want to talk about that? Yeah, you know, I uh, I, I put out, I had both uh, Julian Sprung and, and Charles Delbake mm -hmm. on, and um, you know, I asked them that question about the red field ratio, and and they didn't really think <clears> it was something that was um, that uh, something that people should be that concerned with in terms of the absolutely. So red field ratio, you don't need it. And first of all, uh, let me give you a, for example. Uh, if you are uh, eating butter and bread, okay? So you eat one loaf of bread with one slice of butter, assuming like that. So does it really matter in your refrigerator, you have 100 loaves of bread and two loaves of, uh, two streaks of, uh, two pieces of butter? You still eat the same. So versus, for example, that if you have one loaf of bread in front of you, you have one piece of butter. You eat this together. Now that if, if I put 10 loaves of bread in front of you and 10 streaks uh, of uh, butter in front of you, you still eat the same. What happens if I put 2,000 loaves of bread in front of you and then one, uh, one cube of butter? You still eat the same. It really doesn't matter what's available to you. You can go to grocery store, there are 10,000 loaves of bread and 10,000 sticks of butter, but you're still eating the same. You're still eating the same ratio. So, but on the other hand, that means that refuel ratio in the water column is basically nonsense. Absolutely not, doesn't matter. Basically is that, um, but on the other hand, if you have no butter, you only have tons of bread you probably won't be very happy. <laughs> or you have tons of butter, no bread, and you're probably not gonna just eat the butter, right? So that the, the basic idea is that in the water column or in your food pantry, just make sure you have bread and butter. Andy Bauman, uh, Bauma is saying that uh, usually if he has 100 to one ratio nitrates to phosphate, then that he won't really have cyano. What's your thoughts on that? I think it's just uh, observation. It's an observation. There's a, so many factors in play uh, uh, that affect that, uh, what kind of cyano situation in your tank. It just happened to be one observation. For example, that uh, if an apple fell off the tree outside and then I found a, a, a dime under my carpet, are those related? Probably not. That, but then I can always say, oh, maybe that, that apple on the tree fell down. I will find a diamond on the, bar, on the car, in, in the carpet because I do see that happen. So correlation is not causation. So the, in a complex ecosystem, especially talk about reef tank and, and many of the thing like the, the cyano boom, dino boom is not caused by one or two factors. It caused by so many different factors. And, but we can only see one or two. And then human being has this tendency is to draw correlation. So, but does that correlation actually is the cause? Probably not. Gotcha. So that's how I think that should be looked at. Speaking of correlation, uh, NSB Reefs is asking, any correlation with cyano and bottled bacteria? I seem to have cyano more when I dose bacteria. Actually, that's a possibility. Yeah, because that uh, uh, your bottle of bacteria, there will be a loss of food source in that uh, to keep the bacteria alive. 
that means I lost a nutrient in those bottles. So when you dose that bottle into your tank, and basically you're putting a lot more uh, food into the water column, well, then you see a bacterial boom. Yeah, that's a possibility. That makes sense because some of the correlation makes sense. Some of the correlation may not make sense. So that is how, uh, uh, the important message I want to say is that uh, that's where the science is in play. So the science is to find out that if this observation has a correlation to what happened yeah, in certain phenomena. So that is, that's basically that's what the science is, is that we see something and then we see another thing, do they have a relationship? That's very, very important of science. So, but we don't draw the conclusions that, okay, well, the apple fell, I find a dime on my carpet, that is correlated. No, we, we cannot draw that conclusion. But the thing is that if somebody outside your window toss you a dime, then I find that dime on my carpet. Yes. That is a correlation. That correlates because it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, you know, there's there's uh, bottle bacteria out there that are marketed as uh, algae fighters. You know, I think one of the things that uh, you you see marketed is that you know this mm -hmm. this bottle bacteria will help fight red algae. This bottle bacteria will help fight um, you know brown algae. Um, what uh, what are your thoughts on on uh, using bottle bacteria like that? To, um... uh, actually, there's one example that the bottle bacterial to 5-LG turned out to be not bacterial at all. So we, that's well known, right? So it's algae side in a bottle instead of bacteria. So uh, this, this basic thing is that how can you make this claim saying that, okay, that I, I have this bottle of bacterial. You only chew up the thing we don't want, but leave the thing that we want. And the thing we don't want and the thing we want are pretty similar. That's basically, I call it a marketing or maybe a aqua equalizer. If you, if you watch Rip Beef, yeah. <laughs> if you talk to <laughs> Rich Ross and, and, and Ben Johnson, and then um, uh, they will tell you what the aqua equalizer is. So I will treat that bottles of bacteria as an aqua equalizer version two. So uh, the best way that bottles of bacteria belong is the trash can or dumpster? Seriously, <laughs> you don't waste money on. Are, are there yeah. are there any benefits to dosing bottle bacteria to a, an established reef tank? In your uh, opinion, yes and no. Yes and no. So uh, basically, uh, most of the bottle bacteria, uh, they are uh, those are the nitrification bacteria that you, you already have tons of. Right. And uh, but on the other hand, that uh, coral does feed on bacteria. That's for sure. That's true. So uh, if you dump a bottle of bacteria, you spend 10 bucks, you buy the bottle of bacteria, you dump it in your tank, and then your SPS did not die the next morning. But that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. And then you feel like, oh, I just feed a $10 meal to my SPS. Fine. But if you buy a bottle of bacteria, you dump in your tank, and the next, next morning that one of the coral die, and that is a problem, right? But I believe that most of the bottle of bacteria, they're pretty safe, seriously. So, yeah. Um, I guess the key question, Dong, is do you dose bacteria to your tanks, to your mature reef tanks? No. No. Okay. <laughs> the one important thing is that because I know how fast bacteria grow, the thing is that there is really no need to replenish bacteria because they grow so fast. And also the other thing is that we, uh, we're thinking about how pure are those bottled bacteria and what exactly they are. Because the bacteria can have a beneficial effect 
also can be harmful. You really don't know. Well, and also that by spending $10, $20 to buy a bottle of bacteria that to believe this bacteria is very pure and does not contain harmful pathogen in it, I don't believe it. Because that to get pure bacteria is not that cheap. What, what about um, dosing bottled bacteria to increase the diversity of the bacteria in ah. your system? Okay, now uh, this is a wonderful question. First, I'd like to rock some boats, okay? We always believe in biodiversity. The more, the better. I question that. Is it really? That, where that concept come from? Normally the concept come from is that you try to mimic the ocean. That is a fundamental concept. And the ocean, actually ocean water, uh, I remember I read somewhere in a magazine, uh, science magazine or something like that, uh, you said the ocean water is the dirtiest water on the surface of Earth because there's so much bacteria, so much pathogen inside. So now, uh, actually, when you think about this way, do we, first of all, do we need to duplicate the, the, the nature with our aquaculture coral? So are all these bacteria and virus, uh, fungi and uh, parasites in the ocean water that, that make up this biodiversity are really helpful. So let me give you one example, the way how I think about it. Okay, this is an apple, okay? This is a modern day apple. That's a magic, magic basket, pretty good, okay? <laughs> so try to imagine this. Um, let's roll the time back 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, and then the, the, a human being are pretty in sync with nature because they're surrounded by nature. Now try to imagine this apple 10,000 years ago. It's going to be a wild apple. You will have a lot more biodiversity on the surface of the apple. Alongside with all the uh, food, the hygiene at the time, there will be a lot more biodiversity for human being at the time for the, from the environment. What's the average lifespan? 20 years. For, you, for a human. That? Yeah, for human. Yeah. Right now, we're looking at 70, 80, 90, okay? If you look at our living condition, our living condition has the, our living environment, your bed, your room, the food you eat, the apple you eat, well, organic apple especially, it actually has much, much less biodiversity. So basically, what antibiotics do? Antibiotics revolutionize the whole human being lifespan. Seriously, just roll back 100 years ago. And if you look at the human lifespan, how we conquer all the disease and how we make the healthy human is when the antibiotic was invented and found and discovered. So that changed the, the, our living environment. That make people live a much healthier life. But what is the actual effect? The actual effect is that we have a decreased biodiversity in our living environment. Okay, now, so uh, let me give you an example. Now I drop this apple on the floor. Five second rules, right? <laughs> if you go to Asian country, you drop this apple on the floor, nobody's going to eat it. <laughs> nobody's going to eat it. So, nobody's going to eat it. There's five no seconds, five second there's no rule. Five second rule. No, no five second rule. Immediately this, this apple will go into the sink, get washed and clean up before people eat it. And actually, there's, uh, when I was a kid, that when I watched uh, the, the Western movie, when people eat apple, they do this, see? <laughs> and this, and then they start eating it. 
this is absolutely unbelievable in in like in China, absolutely unbelievable. You bet you over there. There's a, a lot more biodiversity for bacteria, for virus in the environment. You have to wash your vegetable. You have to wash your fruit before you eat it. No five second rule, because here, uh, if you drop it on the street, yeah, five second rule probably still apply. That is because here depends what street much. Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> not the New York City, right? In the middle of the city, right? So then, the, uh, uh, the difference is that the major point is that when your apple drop to a less biodiverse surface, it actually safer to eat. Let's go back to the reef tank. So, uh, clownfish, the wild clownfish, has a much shorter lifespan than uh, the captive uh, clownfish. Of course, that if you don't have accidentally exposed to egg or kill kill them, whatever thing. So uh, in general, uh, captive bred clownfish in a reef tank has a much longer lifespan than they're, they're in the wild. When you compare the reef tank to the ocean, not only there's much less biodiversity in the reef tank, also much less predators. <laughs> Actually, predator also should be considered as a biodiversity as a part of component. That's something that eat you. So that is the thing is that, do we really need biodiversity in order for the coral to thrive? So if you talk about a captive animal, cats and dogs, cats and dogs, actually, you can see that uh, your puppy probably live a longer life than the, than the coyote outside. Why is that? Because your puppy go to the doctor, you pay for the vet, and then the puppy drink clean water, they eat healthy food, which all have the one important thing, less biodiversity. And now let's look at, talk about bacteria. This is a bottle I opened yesterday. <clears throat> when I was in grad school, there's a project uh, in a, for chemistry class. They study that um, if you open a bottle of water, then the bacteria start to quickly, rapidly multiply in there. The conclusion is that after eight hours, merely eight hours, this water is undrinkable because the amount of bacteria in here. So same thing happened to the reef tank. So the bacterial growth is such a rapid, uh, they grow so rapid, for example, they're duplicate, they double the colony in four to eight hours, something like that. So in that case, that whatever bacteria in your tank will replenish itself just overnight. So when you get your car key, get in your car, drive to the pet shop, buy that bacteria in a bottle, the bacteria in your tank already double. <laughs> exactly. So you're That's saying you're is. saying the diversity of adding bottled bacteria is not necessarily going to help things. Yes, absolutely. First of all, it's not necessarily uh, can help things. Second, it can be potentially introduce more pathogenic bacteria in there. So the thing is that if your coral is happy, sit back, relax, enjoy the tank. Don't add, uh, don't complicate the environment. So complicating environment always uh, uh, can lead to one uh, consequence is that it's destroy the environment. So let's um, let's. We're going to talk about, um, you know, coral nutrition in, in terms of coral mm -hmm. feeding and, and, and how to make them happier. But I, w I want to get to a, um, a super chat question by uh, Arturo Reef. Thank you so much for that super chat. 
Um, and the question is, and we've talked about this before in this live stream, I might have talked about this with you, Dunk, but can Dunk talk about his opinion on RTN and STN, and is this bacteria-related? And let me just give you a little bit more insight from uh, Arturo Reef. My problem, every mm -hmm. time I go on vacation, I have STN, only difference I saw, um, pH 8.63 pH high side. That's pretty high pH. Usually mine yeah, sits around... Usually it sits around 8.5. Uh, mm -hmm. No other parameters change. Actually, tank was more stable in terms of temp and uh, salt, everything else. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess just, um, you know, um, quick summary, Dung, in terms of RTN and STN, what, um, what can you tell folks out there in terms of the, uh, the causes of that? And, and um, you know, I guess the main question is, is this, is this bacteria-related? Uh First of all, if you have RTN, rapid tissue necrosis, okay, in that case, something is wrong. So uh, it can be bacteria-related, it can be light-related, or you can just get stung by the neighbor. Or you can be just uh, some fish rub on it. Yeah, they, that will cause that uh, the rapid tissue necrosis too. So uh, there is uh, so many causes for uh, RTN and STN. It's very difficult to nail it down to one or two um, reasons there. So basically, the diagnostic tool is just not there, not at a hobby level. Not, uh, we don't process this kind of uh, uh, equipment, technology to correctly identify this. So uh, when you have something, well, if, if you have, let's say if you have 100 coral, one coral RTN, so what? That happened all the time. It happened, happened to me too. I wake up in the morning, somebody dead. So after, if I have yeah, a thousand frag, one die, I get a, I grab it out, toss it in the trash can and go on my day, okay? So, but if you have the 30 coral, 15 of them uh, die, rapid tissue necrosis. And at that moment, that is a, something's wrong. When that thing happened, it's almost impossible to nail down exactly what happened. It could be bacterial. It could be, you know, yeah, there's some uh, uh, heavy metal get dropped into the tank, or maybe your, your heater is broken. There's so many important things. Uh, so many things can, can make that happen. In this case, what we can do, we can only uh, react to what we have seen and what is available to us. In this kind of thing, a situation happened, what is available to us? Water change, water change, water change. Because that uh, water is like the blood for coral. Uh, only difference is that we have a blood inside, wrapped inside, and then coral have the blood also outside. <laughs> so another thing is that when your water becomes poisonous, what you're going to do? You're not going to sit around and grab a microscope out and send out ICB test too late. So you should grab a bucket, a bottle, change as much water as possible. Of course, you have to examine if your heater is broken. If you're using some power head, also broken or leaking electricity. So when you rule all of them out, do your water change. For matter of fact, and, and, don't even rule them out. Do the water change first. And another thing to check is pests. <laughs> pests. Uh, well, like, you know, you that, get acro-eating flatworms, that can cause a little uh, STN on, on corals. Yes, but acro-eating flatworm will not suddenly cause um, multiple different species coral right. RTN together. Yeah. So uh, of course that uh, treating the pests is always the, the first priority. So, uh, but also that the pests are easy to see. So those kind of things is that if it's RTN, for matter of fact, here's the thing, 
uh, if you see uh, aqua-eating flatworm, they actually have preference of different type of coral, like aquapora. They have preference. Some of the aqua will never have aqua-eating flatworm, and some coral just no matter what, if you look at it, it got infested. Tricolors. For example. Oh, tricolor. <laughs> oh, uh, $500 afro. Yeah. That's another yeah. thing. It's a so magnet. So purple thing, yeah. <laughs> so if you just look at it, the aqua-eating flatworm just start to stick on it. <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, if you find a coral, uh, let, let's say one out of 20 coral you have is going to RTM, and you look at it, oh, you find aqua-eating flatworm. You actually should breathe a sign of relief. Thank God. That is, that's the cause. It's not because my water has problem. The worst nightmare is the water has problem. That is the hardest to deal with. If, right, it's it's like the invisible, it's the invisible foe there, you know? Yeah, and also that foe hit everybody. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> that is, 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 it doesn't discriminate against what type of coral. So it just hit everybody. It's just that uh, this coral will die today and that will die tomorrow. Or maybe this one will last a little bit longer. But all of them will get affected. That is the worst nightmare. But in this case, whenever we see something happen, uh, you see this coral death and you put it out, oh, no, no flat worm, and you see the other coral is not very happy, well, your, your best tool have to, uh, at your disposal is water change. Of course, that you have to make sure your heater is not broken. And then uh, it's not accidental. You have uh, uh, 10 pennies uh, from your kid that just dropped in your rift tank. That's an entirely different That's story. That's no good. Right? That's no good. <laughs> and, 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 uh, <laughs> so change water immediately. Don't wait for ICP what's, test. Don't wait for any. What's, a safe, what's a safe number? 50%? Is that too? Um... I think that probably forty percent at one shot. One, okay. So, for example, you change forty percent, and then let, let, uh, of course that if in an emergency situation, you see if you have uh, thirty acro and that twenty five of them is dying. Well, in that case, probably the better way to toss them out and <laughs> restart <laughs> the tank. We're just kidding. <laughs> so when that happened, so uh, you probably want to look at changing more than fifty, uh, 60, 70 percent of water. Uh, just like Richard Ross said, uh, well, you, you, if you, are, you have a carbon monoxide poisoning in your garage, so do you open the garage door immediately or open, or you just open 10% of the time? <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 both doors wide open. Wide open. Yeah. So your, your water change immediately happens. That is why there's a very interesting, uh, very important trick that I learned over the years. Always have clean seawater well mixed available to you always have that what happened that if that water is sit there for one month you didn't get a use toss them out and start a new one so but always have uh clean water clean seawater readily mixed available actually is really helpful you never know what's going to happen so but you always have this backup for example you accidentally drop your water in your tank and then the 100 uh penny copper penny fell into the tank. <laughs> so in that case, you immediately scoop them up through your water change. And then at that moment, you really appreciate that you have this 20 gallon of water sitting there. It's already well mixed and at room temperature. Yeah. So that actually is um, a very easy, simple, but useful safeguard. Just like uh, your emergency aid 
uh, your fire distinguisher sitting there, yeah. always ready. Yeah. Um, so we got Alex Correa in the chat, and uh, he is always um, very verbose in his comments, and I appreciate that, Alex. But uh, he's got an interesting question for you, Don. Don, can you please talk about some of your observations and the relationship between RTN and STN on acros in regards to excess nutrients? Is there any causation uh, there? Correlation. Excess nutrient. Well, it's very difficult to say. It depends on what kind of nutrient you actually uh, uh, be able be able to observe. For matter of fact, uh, majority of the so-called nutrient, basically we can say those are the organic compound that is in the water column, which the coral does not like. Let's say, how about this definition should be pretty appropriate. Is that the organic compound in the water column that coral does not like. The problem is that the method we'd be able to use to test them is almost non-existent. We can only test the nitrate and phosphate. So in that case, that basically that uh, majority of the toxic compound, the compound that coral does not like, we have no way to test them. That's the biggest problem about that so-called high nutrient, low nutrient. So your phosphate and nitrate is not an indicator of the nutrient level in your seawater. It's only the two parameter we be able to test at the hobby scale test kit. That is the, the unfortunately, that's the fact. 99% of them saying that irritate coral in the water column, we have no way to test them. So not even ICP testing? No, ICP tests only test inorganic elements. All these irritants, for example, uh, one typical example is uh, uh, chemical warfare. And then the, uh, the compound, the toxic compound that generated by coral to uh, suppress the other coral growth or even make it toxic to kill other coral, those kind of things. Chemical warfare happen all the time. But those chemical warfare, the compound, we have no way to test them. And actually they're a lot more lethal. Well, yeah, there is a you know, less appropriate example here. Let's say, look at your anemone. So anemone, on, on anemone, there's a, a millions of stinger cells on the anemone. For example, that if you wake up in the morning, look in your tank, you see your uh, beloved purple tank dead. Well, you maybe got stung by the anemone. That can happen. And you have no way to test how much uh, this nematocyst, those stinger cells in the water. No, you cannot test them. For example, if your anemone walk into your power head, voila, chemical warfare like a nuclear bomb. <laughs> all these stinger cells just spread all over your tank. We don't have test kit for it. What we have, we grab a nitrate test kit, get a phosphate test kit, test them. Oh, it seems to be normal because that all this deadly weapon, deadly thing in your water, that is murder your fish, are not testable. So in this situation, what can you do? Yeah. Water change. Yeah, again, just change the water, get them out. Just, just blanketly get them out. That's the, that's why water change is the cure all. Seriously, just like ICP test. Look at your tritonite ICP test. Yeah, you, this element is elevated. What are you gonna do? Water change. This element is probably uh, not sufficient, and there's no single element for you to dose. What's the recommendation? Water change. It's water change. Basically, uh, water change is like replacing the air. For example, that you you have a gas leak. What do you do? Open your window, air change. You don't grab a test kit to test your, your air. <laughs> oh, this happened. Uh, well, wait a minute, I only have a carbon dioxide monitor. 
which the carbon dioxide is perfectly fine. That's the only tool I have. Does it mean that uh, those uh, uh, natural gas in the air that is, is not there? No, it's there. And then what are you going to do? Open up the window. Otherwise, the consequence is pretty serious. So that's why that in our hobby, the tool available to us to test our water is so limited. That actually rescue our uh, uh, percep uh, perception about what's in the water. So basically, what we, uh, our tank water, no matter what kind of test kit, what kind of machine you have, is still a black box. That means the majority of the stuff inside the fish tank, we cannot test. If a problem happened, change your water. Well, uh, Don, what are, what are your feelings on people that don't do water changes that uh, essentially will... Um utilize trace elements and miners to replenish, you know, get, get the elements in sync with where they, you know, should be in terms of, let's say, natural seawater or whatever you're doing in terms of ICP testing. You know, there are, there are certain methods out there that um, call for um, dosing these trace elements on mm -hmm. a regular basis and not uh, necessarily needing to do water changes. Is that something that um, you're not a believer in? Actually, uh, well, I don't think it's a very good method to do it, but it definitely works for many people. But it all depends on what kind of coral you're keeping. And also that it does not avoid, uh, uh, well, what we're talking about earlier is about that when something wrong happens. Right. So, uh, for example, that if you have an anemone walk into your power head, the, those uh, no water change folks still have to change water. There's no other way around, right? But for regular maintenance, so uh, as long as the major parameter like alkalinity, calcium, magnesium, well, pH. So uh, Chris will really love that. Yeah, pH. Uh, to mention, yeah, pH is actually pretty important. So uh, the part of the parameter. And then if all those are in line, in check, I think the coral will be happy enough for hobby, hobbyist. Uh, but if you're uh, talking about uh, farming coral to squeeze the last drop of the gross potential out of the coral. I don't believe that. I don't believe that you are able to uh, provide exactly the level of all the element that the coral needed at that level. Why is that? First of all, we don't know most of the element do what they do. You go on a website and say, okay, uh, uh, vanadium. Yeah, vanadium. Everybody loves that thing. What does it do? Uh, you have a, have a description say, oh, you help your coral grow. You, you, you blah, blah, blah. But where's the scientific evidence? Where's the study? Where it shows that you do anything? So that is the faster problem is that, yeah. And all these description is that is so vague. Oh, you help the coral grows. Everything helps the coral grows. I can toss a piece of tuna in my tank. You help the coral grow. <laughs> yes, that's the important thing. Second thing is that what is the optimal level? You know, nobody knows. Why is that? There is no scientific literature on that subject. There maybe is important, but then nobody actually do the study yet. We don't know. What is the optimal level? Is the, is the water, uh, the sea level is the optimal level? Now we go back to the question, which part of the sea you're talking about? <laughs> Are you talking about Red Sea? Are you talking about that little pool uh, on the Great Barrier Reef? Are you talking about that little pool one mile away from, from the Great Barrier Reef? Are you talking about the little piece of ocean that closer to the shore? Are you talking about the 
uh, the some kind of part of ocean in African lake, they're all different. And also, are you talking about five meter deep? Are you talking about three feet deep? Are you talking about 20 feet deep? Even the salinity is different. There's a lot right? of that variables in play, huh? Exactly. <laughs> there is no natural level, basically, period. No natural level. Natural level is not a set level. It depends on location. And even the, the, that, that reminds me of what is the optimal temperature for fish. Actually, the fish will, well, well, the different depths of water have a different temperature. The fish go from 72 degree, go down to 69 degree, go back to 78 degree, go to 82 degree when they surface the water. What is the optimal temperature for fish? It doesn't exist. And what's the optimal parameter of the ocean? Which part of the ocean? Show me that part of the ocean. It doesn't exist. We talk about this ocean, the parameter is different than that ocean, parameter is different. But all the ocean, ocean where the coral grows, there's one consistent, uh, several consistency. The alkalinity is pretty similar. The calcium level is pretty similar. The magnesium level, yeah, is pretty similar. So uh, the variation is not that big, and we know about that. So that, that's how we form the basis about dosing this element. So that means that when your alkalinity is fine, your calcium is fine, your magnesium is fine, forget about vanadium. So, and then the coral you're trying to, you treasure most, may not live in that piece of water that has a lot of vanadium there. It doesn't. So that bottom line is that don't worry about this kind of thing. And also another thing is that, how do you be able to accurately measure this tiny, tiny, uh, small amount? It doesn't. So all these tests has limitations. So how big the limitation is? Let me give you one example. I want you to use <clears throat> this bottle to measure one gram of sodium chloride for me. Can you do that? No, you cannot. That's exactly what ICP do. They, they will tell you something, but is it really? No, it's not. So basically, the, just like you use a five gallon bucket, try to me measure one ounce of sugar. You cannot do that. So when that thing fell apart, other things all fall apart. So uh, all the fundamental scientific common sense fall apart. Only one sense that doesn't fall apart is profit margin. I promote some kind of technology, you use it, you pay me for it, I benefit for it, I just decorate it more. So it seems like you cannot live without it. That is called capitalism. That is marketing, especially for hobby. There is no regulatory body to regulate this kind of thing. That go back to aqua equalizer. So we should really talk to Richard Ross. Let's look at this aqua equalizer. That's basically the same thing. Or the infrared powder. <laughs> I mean, listen. Yeah, I, I um, and I'm just I'm keeping track of the comments here. Already, I'm entering my car to captivate trace elements now. You know, I mean, listen, I, I use I use the trace element uh, methodology in terms of ICP mm -hmm. testing and, and dosing trace elements. You know, my corals are um, are very happy, you know, and, they, and, and, and things look uh, very, you know, happy and healthy. I think, you know, an interesting point to raise is that, you know, there is no cookie cutter way to run a, a reef tank, yes. right? Yep. And I think there are many different methodologies I think what you're saying, Dong, is that um, you'd like to see more scientific evidence for uh, a lot of the uh, products out there in terms of the benefits and 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 what have you. But you know, I, I I think it is important to say that there are many many different mouse traps to 
successfully keep um, a reef tank. But also this is a hobby. Yep. So hobby should have a fun factor. So basically I'm speaking in uh, on a viewpoint of a scientist. Yep. How I look at these products. But on the other hand, <clears throat> if I uh, look at all these products as a as a, a hobbyist, now the thing can be different. For example, if I send out ICP test, I look at the test, all the results all green, I feel better. Yeah. Gives you a warm, fuzzy glow. Exactly. What a hobby is. Hobby is to give you this warm, fuzzy grow. If you think I throw some vanadium in there, as long as I don't kill my fish, and then, then, then you, uh, I feel better. I, I perceive the coral grows better, more colorful. Why not? Because that it doesn't cost much. If I want to follow one method versus the other method as a hobbyist, nothing wrong with it because it's a hobby. You are entitled to do whatever you feel like to make you happy to do. Well, provided you are not hurting the animal. But the good thing is that all these methods out there, none of them actually will lead to a, like a tank failure or anything. Right. The, the, the worst thing you can do, they can do is that nothing. Right. It doesn't help. It doesn't do anything worse. But uh, on the other hand, um, since there's uh, so little scientific study on a lot of these trace elements, well, there's a chance this trace element does help, right? And 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 that that's the the, the idea is that um, you just haven't been discovered yet. I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence <clears throat> out there, and yes. right, and, and we don't have the um, at least I'm not aware of it. Maybe uh, and, and it seems like you're not aware of the uh, scientific proof or the studies that back yes. that up. Maybe maybe mm -hmm. there are out there, and, and we're not. Um, privy. Uh, my question is that: Do we really need the scientific backup? because there's always a psychological effect in any hobby. So the funny thing is that just like my psychological schemer, that even though it does, does nothing at all, but having that schema running there make, make me feel ease, ease. But then I try to get break my comfort zone and then I take it off. But the then psychological actually, schimmer. Put, yeah, but I put it back. Oh, you did? Right now. Yeah, I put it back because uh, <laughs> I, it, don't, it doesn't make me feel very good. So, so even though I know, probably it does nothing, but having it running there, it make me happy. That's important thing. Yep. For example, also there's another psychological effect. So this is my homemade iodine. Uh, uh, so basically, I, I just drop about 10 mils in my tank every day. Do I see anything different? For matter of fact, I do. Because every right after I drop this iodine in my tank, all the coral become more colorful. Seriously, human psychological effect exists. <laughs> but well, even though I, I don't overdose this kind of thing, but I feel better. The coral looks prettier right after dosing because even though I know it's not real, okay? But it's psychological. But as a hobbyist, as a hobby, why not? If this bottle cost me $10,000, hell no. <laughs> so <laughs> this cost me 10 cents. Why not? Yeah, why not? But of course, I won't overdose it to kill my coral because I know that if it dose too much, there's a that potentially have consequence. So it also happened to the, all the trace element. For matter of fact, that's, uh, Chris McMee had brought up a very important thing. Are these trace element is for coral or for the bacteria? Right. For matter of fact, that when I'm doing literature research, I found more evidence that the trace element due to the bacteria than coral. But the bacteria also uh, make up the whole biomet in your tank. Maybe there, there is not a, the, the dosing trace element has nothing to do with a coral, 
maybe it helped the bacteria some, somehow help it a lot, a little bit. Well, the, the bottom line is that uh, I don't the, the, those uh, follow this uh, trace element method, but I can say my coral is as colorful as many people that who does that. I con that I concur. I I've, right? I've seen that in yeah. person. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, there's one uh, uh, major secret here. You know, this water, they're not RODI. They're all tap water. Yeah, very shocking. Though I tell everybody, this is tap water. Then, <laughs> since this is tap water, it has a lot of fluoride in it. Even though I don't dose fluoride, I maybe have more than enough fluoride. If you use RODI, you may need to dose fluoride. That, that's a possible thing. Since I don't use RODI, this is tap water, it has a lot more trace element that add to the tank than when you use RDI. Can that be a factor for this coral to grow like this and to have the color? It's absolutely possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, the, but the bottom line is that whatever works for you is the correct way. As long as you don't kill the coral to, to do some damage, not throwing 100 pen in your tank. Yeah. That is, I'm, yeah. I'm not confident in my tap water where I'm at, but. Uh... Oh, actually that, that is, is Absolutely true, hundred percent true. Uh, it highly depends on which tongue you live yeah. in. So, because that our tap water is generated by the tongue, we have our own water plant, we have our own power plant, and we have our own fiber optic. By the way, we cannot use any fiber optic. Only thing we can use is the one that provided by the tongue. Okay, mm. so it's how, sounds like a monopoly. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we do have very good water. Seriously, that that that's one one thing. So that's why I won't recommend people to use tap water, because it highly depend on your tongue. So I'd be able to use that because I live in this town, and also because over like since two thousand and four, I've been using the same tap same tap water. It has been well proven. I even I have even people come out to to my uh, garden holes to take this water to mix up their salt. Oh, yeah. that's your special <laughs> water. That's your special water. Oh, yeah, the tongue, I thought, tongue I thought water. they're coming grabbing yeah. your uh, salt water. They're coming and grabbing your tap water. Oh, they also grab my salt water. Okay. Both. Yeah, the tap water just go out and just just open the the, the <laughs> sprinkler. Just just feel free. So I I do give away my my salt water that way force myself to do water change. So that also go back to the uh, water change or no water change method. Here's the interesting thing is that if everything goes well you probably don't need to do a lot of water change. Seriously. For example, that what I found out is that this is another anecdotal uh, uh, observation, not a correlation, not a scientific study, is that the more coral I find out in a system, the probably the less water change you can do. Why is that? My hypothesis is that your coral is a nutrient export. The more coral you have, you have a more nutrient export. So that means you uh, the loss of this organic get removed out of the water column. So your water probably is cleaner. Well, the uh, the folks that saw the video that uh, I did the, uh, you know, did a little mm -hmm. um, tour of your facility there, Dong, part one we put out um, about a week or two ago and part two is coming out soon. But uh, uh -huh. in, in that part one video, you talked about using uh, Xenia and bubble yep. um, bubble tip anemones as a sources of nutrient export. Yep, it's very effective. Because Azenia is really uh, growing like a, a pest, but <clears throat> we can always utilize the pests. Uh, actually, 
back like 15 or something more than that, long time ago, uh, that uh, the, the co-founder of Unicoro. Joe, is that... Joe Capriata? Uh, the other one. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Feldman. Yeah. Uh, Fel Feldman. Yeah, Feldman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he gave a talk at Boston Research Society that back so many years ago. He talked about using Aptasia as a neutron export. Mm. Ha! The, the reason is that they grow so rapidly. GSP is a good neutron export. Well, I think GSP probably doesn't grow fast enough. But <clears throat> Posenzinia, yes. And also the bubble team anemone. Oh my God. I try to clear them out. It's still, <laughs> it seems like I have more and more. <laughs> so all these fast-growing coral, they can, all can be utilized as part of neutron export yeah. because they do fix all these organic and uh, organic nutrients locked in their body and become uh, like a zinnia, bubble tip, and then I just give away the potent zinnia. Yeah. So uh, I remember, remember one time that a lady came over. I gave her half five gallon bucket full of potenzinia by harvesting, and she was so happy. I was so happy because I know that I get rid of so much nutrient from the tank, and she <laughs> got so much zinnia, and then, then she can have a full tons of zinnia. Zinnia is pretty, seriously. It is very pretty. They they actually move by themselves. They have a nerve system. They snap around. So well, yeah, it, it's it, pretty it, cool. It, yeah, it's pretty cool. But as as long as they're they're on their own island, own tank, perfectly fine. Yeah, you don't want to take over. Uh, Rob up Senior, thanks very much, man, for the uh, super chat. The question is, um, Dong, on a smaller sixty gallon mixed reef cube, what's best? Five gallon water changes weekly or twenty gallons per month? I do five gallon weekly. Is this useless and a waste of money? Question mark. Um, actually, <clears throat> I think that uh, more frequent water change probably is better. So smaller, uh, smaller, more frequent. Actually, it's not about the amount; it's about the frequency. So, of course, that uh, you can do a larger amount more frequent is always better than smaller amount more frequent. So, <clears throat> it's based on one theory: is that a lot of this uh, harmful organic substance like the uh, coral warfare and those chemicals started or or waste organic waste started build up in a tank, right? Like any compound, organic compound, that uh, they have to reach certain concentration so that they can have a biological effect. For example, that uh, copper, right? I just said, uh, this is not organic compound, but just let's just say copper. Copper is required at very small amount, but that is beneficial. If you have zero copper, then your coral is gonna die. So. Uh, but when you have too much copper, your coral is going to die. So copper becomes bad <clears throat> when you reach certain concentration. Every time you do a water change, you effectively lower all these harmful materials concentration lower. So you can potentially make them less, uh, doesn't reach the concentration that can have a bad biological effect. So Basically, all these compounds keep building up, building up, building up. And then, for example, that if they reach here, then it, your coral is going to die. So now you, after your water change, now this compound started coming up. Then you do watch water change, it comes down again. And then it will build up again. And then you do a freaking water change, whoop, you go down again. So yeah. 
even though this compound always in your water column, but they're always at a lower concentration than the concentration they can have bad effect. So if you do once a month, then you talk about, okay, now the coracal suffer, boom, going back down. And then you, you, you build again, coral suffer again, you come, then you, you, you bring it down again. But now, uh, you can have the potential to over the, the harmful concentration that your coral going to suffer. So that is why the more frequent water change is always mm. uh, beneficial, more beneficial than uh, the large water change in a short, uh, in a long period of time. Uh, that's where this automatic water change thing, actually, I think it's pretty cool. If uh, <clears throat> I, I think that well, automatic water change, uh, but daily water change, actually, that that is uh, really a good method. I, you know, those those things kind of scare me because it's automated, and and uh, <laughs> being automated means that something can go wrong. I don't know. I just you're you're not an automated yes. guy, Dong. I know that, man. You're all nope. manual, right? Nope. I I love five gallon bucket. Yeah. But actually, I do daily water change. Yeah, but that's, I just five that's, malin. that's manual. Huh? That's manual. Oh, manual, manual. <laughs> that's why I encourage people to come get my water. <laughs> so, so Don, we uh, we started out talking about um, you know how to start a uh, a reef tank in terms of cycling and all that stuff, and and then we took a major diversion. <laughs> um, but just just quickly, and then I don't know if we have time to talk about coral uh, feeding or not, but. Um, uh, just quickly, in terms of what would you say should come first, fish or corals, after you cycle? Uh, coral first. Coral first. So, because coral is much more resilient than fish, actually. Well, I'm talking about aquaculture coral. So, when we talk about wild coral or marine culture coral, hell no, that that, that is, is not going to work. Aquaculture coral is genetically different than the wild and marine culture coral. They're more Robust. LPS or More SPS? Tolerable. LPS or SPS huh? first? Actually, SPS. Because many of the LPS, uh, the aquaculture LPS, you have a lot less selection. For example, you got uh, uh, aquaculture frog spawn, hammer, and uh, Duncan. Uh, what else that actually be able to sustain but not very fragile? So Duncan? Duncan, yeah. Duncan, uh, scoli, out of the question. All the scoli are wild. Mid coral, give me a break. A thousand dollar that piece of thing, right from the ocean. No way. So, uh, no. But SPS, you have a lot more choice. Monty Cap, oh my God, I cannot even give them away. <laughs> uh, they grow so fast, you, you can you can see them just occupying all the space. So, uh, and then uh, uh, Burst Nest, Montipora Digita, all sorts of color, bright color. Green Slimer as an acro. Those things are so robust and grow fast. The, and, and also, and, and the important thing is that coral eat the ammonia. Fish suffer from ammonia. Coral actually happy to consume the ammonia. So you don't need to have that tank cycle before adding coral. <clears throat> uh, no, 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 no. You have to get a cycle first. The cycle is not just for dropping uh, your ammonia to zero. No, it's not that simple. It also is a process, very important to let all the biomics to sort of have some kind of establishment. So even one or two months makes a huge difference there. So uh, then that makes, uh, uh, before 
the tank is cycled, which means that the nitrate uh, took over, takes over, your ammonia is zero. That is a step that you cannot skip. You have to go through that. But also during that stage, you're actually allowing the biomic to establish, the environment to establish. So patient is the key. So if you add coral to an uncycled tank, no matter what kind of coral add to it, you're killing them. So um, that's why that uh, when the tank is cycled with the light on, important thing, with the light just set uh, as it's supposed to be, um, then you start adding some hardy uh, easy SPF, something $5, $10 kind of thing, something die, you don't, uh, doesn't break your bank, and it's aquaculture, the, the, the coral reef doesn't get harmed. If you put a scotty in there, yeah, you are actually harming the coral reef, seriously, because that thing was yanked off the reef and go, uh, probably 10 of his companions already dead before he reached the wholesaler, and then another five of his companions died to reach the retailer and go to you, your, uh, your tank, a tank is not cycle, great. <laughs> and now there's probably a hundred score to die in this process. What, uh, what, what's the best way to cycle the tank? Uh, best way is uh, bacterial, actually. Do, don't, so, don't say denitrifying yeah, bacteria. Yeah, so, so because of that, that is also well established. Of course, it's not like a TV show, the tank, right? The TV show, just one gallon of this bacterial point there at your fish. That's absolutely BS. Okay, that is really bad practice. But uh, use the bacteria to cycle your tank. It's well established, well studied. Nothing wrong with that. It's much better using your raw shrimp. And all it does is that you jumpstart the tank. Just pour your bacteria in, let them settle on your on your rock and start to multiply. Voila. And that is the best way to cycle your tank. Gotcha. Um, so it is a myth then, but a lot of people, you, you, you hear a lot of people say that um, Reef tank's not ready for SPS until seven or eight months. Myth? Mm, I don't think I don't think that's true. Well, uh, even you have a tank, it's one year old. It's probably still not ready for wild and marine culture SPS. Acro, that's what I mean. Seriously, those kind of things, the, the the survival rate is so low. They very difficult to adapt to the captive environment. Even you have a two year reef tank, you still have a lot of mortality. Of, of wild SPS. What I'm talking about is that aquaculture SPS. Right. Don, do we have time to, uh, to talk about <laughs> coral feeding or should we? Uh, should sure, we, should... yeah, yeah. I, I have all the time you can have. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, we, uh, we talked about um, a bunch of stuff. We talked about dosing bacteria as a food source and you did mention mm -hmm. that, um, you know, there, there is a possibility that corals could be uh, benefiting from that because they, there are bacteria that live on the uh, on the corals. So perhaps that is a, uh, a potential benefit in terms of adding the bacteria. But I, I think also what I got out of the uh, what you had said before, Dong, is that there are so many bacteria already in the tank, and <clears throat> yep. um, dosing different bacteria that are in the tank not might not necessarily help. So. I guess the jury is still out in terms of dosing bacteria as a food source for corals, even though we do know that corals do consume bacteria, right? So, yes. Okay, I got that right. Um, what about um, we've we've talked about this before with with, with uh, when you were on. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly when 
the uh, use of live phytoplankton. Okay. How um, how beneficial is that for coral <clears throat> nutrition? Yes, I think it's the uh, basic pyramid, the bottom of the pyramid for the whole food net inside your reef tank. So uh, how important it is, is basically it should be bread and butter. Is that important? So um, I dose phyto, I don't dose one ounce, two ounce. I just pour. I grab that one gallon, uh, actually the one gallon jug, it just boom, 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 pour in, into it. Actually, I pour on top of my clams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so they got a little bit more chance to, to capture those. So I, I pour enough that I have a section that with several giant clams, uh, one baby, one very big one, and one medium. I pour enough phyto in there. That section is green. <laughs> ah, is that green much? on the glass or green uh, in the water? Green in the water. Yep. And that is uh, how, how, much, how much I feed them. So basically, it's, it's really difficult to overfeed phyto. So one time I, I find out that I, I may be overfeeding phyto is that I started seeing the phyto show, show up on the glass. <laughs> <laughs> so, Some residue. Uh, uh, no, they actually grow on it. Grow on it. Yeah. And then, uh, well, I, I just grab a razor blade and scrape them off and feed the tank again. So, <laughs> so the, the corals, and we're talking SPS in particular here, are not necessarily consuming the phyto, but the, no, but the no, organisms uh, lower on, on the food chain are. And so that's kind of yes. fueling uh, life in the reef tank, so to speak, that's providing yep. food for the corals to eat. Down the line. Yes, yes, okay. absolutely true. And actually, it's well studied that uh, like Acropora, they don't eat phyto. That uh, because that there have been enough study done on that. Uh, Acropora actually is mostly a meat eater. <laughs> and and what so, phyto is doing is promoting the growth of um, pods, right? Yeah, copepods, yeah. anthropods, and uh, not only pods, also your sponge, and all sorts of uh, tiny little uh, life forms that uh, then they're happy growing and they spawn. When they spawn, they spill out all these tiny, tiny uh, particles. So those kind of things are meaty substance. They're meaty. They actually get consumed by coral. So a couple questions about uh, Fido Rich, Rich Colombo. Should we shut the skimmer off when dosing? And I'll add um, another part to that. What about UV? Uh, I think that the... Uh, uh, you don't have to. Well, I don't turn off my skimmer because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really don't see too much of a difference there. I just pour. Um, uh, in terms of UV, because I don't run UV, I cannot answer that question. So, um, but one thing I do know is that most of the hobby grade UV, the pathetically low in power. So they probably doesn't do anything at all. So, um, <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned aquabiomics. I, I, um, yep. I do run UV in my systems and, and, um, you know, the tests that I've gotten back from those guys, you know, uh, Eli has said like, well, it's obvious you're running UV because there are certain bacteria that are not showing up in your profile that, um, would, would show up if, if you were not running UV. Um, uh, actually, because you are a pro. You're running the good stuff. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I, my, my UVs are uh, pumping out enough juice there. Um, 
So uh, Andy's asking, how often does Donk dose Fido? And I guess um, I'll add to that, how often and how much? Uh, so uh, basically, whenever, whenever I feel like, I feel like generously, I just pour. <laughs> <laughs> because seriously, you do not have to do it on a schedule. And then the thing is that, uh, <clears throat> and you do not have to dose a particular amount. Basically, how do you determine how much phyto you need? There's no way to determine that because that each tank has different bio load. The different uh, uh, kind of, uh, the live rock is different. The animal leaf on the live rock is different. And also the amount of sponge in your sum are different. And then among the coral and the coral species is different. How can anybody give you a number? <clears throat> Absolutely impossible. Hold it, man. You gave me a number. Well, because I, I pull it out of my head. <laughs> because I know uh, the number I give you is to make sure you dose more than enough. Right. Right. And yep. what was that number? I don't know off the top of my head. I, I, I dose. So to both of my systems, my one of my systems is 446 gallons. The other system is like 349 gallons. I think I dose like 22 ounces a day to each of those systems. I think it's pretty low. You think that's Probably low? One ounce, one ounce to... One ounce per 25 to 50 gallons of water, depending on your... Yeah, no, I, I went above your recommendations, I think. I think I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's that I'm getting so lazy, I just started pouring. <laughs> well, the problem is, Don, you know, you, you, you got to raise a lot of phyto to, uh, to just keep pouring it in there, right? I mean, I'm, well, doing, like, actually, I'm, I'm doing like four one-and-a-half-gallon plastic jugs of phyto a week. I'm growing. Well, that, that, that's, that's what I do is I enlist the help of fellow reefers. Oh. I give them store credit for their phyto. <laughs> oh, so you're taking in phyto. Ah, yeah, I take, I take in phyto. I just, so every week, by the end of the week, I probably have a little bit left. Oh, okay. So, uh, well, you got like, what, well, 1,700 gallons in terms of your total systems, 2,000 gallons? Yeah, something like that. So probably consume about uh four gallons of phyto at least yeah a week yeah rob of state new york uh, dung is growing his own phyto i know that and yeah. you're taking in others because you yeah, need yeah. more otherwise uh plus that i sell some of the phyto so there's not i don't sell a lot seriously in terms of phyto uh but majority is all consumed by my tank um <clears throat> live phyto versus products out there that are N mm -hmm. non-live let's say non-live phyto products what are your thoughts on non-live phyto products i actually started with non-live phyto products because they're easy cheap simple you don't see the same benefit at all so um i think that uh <clears throat> one of the important thing about phyto the living phyto actually they reduce your nutrient too because i one time uh, one of my raceway uh, sprung a leak, okay? So I took it down, cleaned it, filled it back up, and then all my egg crate is covered with dino. Mm. All the new surface. So what I do, I learned from a coral farm, I started pouring one gallon of phyto every night in a 120-gallon raceway. Wow. One, yes, and... After, I forget, maybe one week or two weeks, all the dino gone. So you just smothered it with phyto to get rid of the dinos. Oh, yeah. 
And then uh, because that tank is linked to the rest of the system, and then uh, the clams are happy, corals are happy. <laughs> <laughs> the dinos are gone. <clears throat> Dino is gone. For matter of fact, uh, I learned from uh, one, uh, one of the coral farms. That's what they do. Uh, when they take down a system, they need to repair something, uh, repair it, or reset it up, clean it. When they set it back up, always have a dino outbreak or, or even dino outbreak, uh, especially on the egg crate because of the new surface or the clean surface. So uh, what they do is by bombard them with a live vital. I did it and it worked. So that that is one important thing. Um, the, because that live vital actually is competing with the dino for a nutrient. The death stuff is just pollution. The, the non-live vital, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but a non-live vital is useful for those animals actually actively consuming them. Gotcha. And you have to target feed them into their mouths. Whatever fly away, land it in your tank, become a pollution. And then, yep. then yeah, that, yep. that becomes an issue. Um, I just saw a comment uh, from Ari. You guys dose it lights off or during the day? So, Dong, Fido, dose. I can answer this question because Dong told me the best time to dose is when your polyps are out in your SPS, right? So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Lights out or early. I do mine early in the morning, and that's um, my polyps are dancing at that time of the day there. So, that's uh, when the lights are out, that's when you want to do it. And for a matter of fact, uh, that brings up an interesting uh, topic uh, that, uh, that I want to discuss is that um, we have this kind of uh, 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 old wife tale, the knowledge uh, that passed down from ancient history, that we need to dose our rib roy everything when the light is out. I don't think so. You can dose all this food whenever the polyp is open. So probably that a lot of SPS, they, they only open it night for lots of people that's why that uh uh the the, the manufacturer will say maybe you dose it at night but when you look at the, the polyps open your reef tank just dose it yeah like your homemade frozen food dose it when the polyps out it makes no difference when the polyp is out and they're, they're gonna grab it they're gonna eat it and for a matter of fact i train my sun coral to open up during daytime <laughs> <laughs> that's cool that's when they should be opening up yeah. so we could enjoy their beauty <laughs> Um, yeah, they, 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 whenever the food in a, in a water column, now they, they, they know. Right. They open you've, up you've, daytime, they're expecting to be fed. You've conditioned them. John Wright's asking, mm -hmm. um, do corals benefit from fish poo rather than feeding? What about fish poo as a <laughs> food source? Well, here's the thing. Uh, your fish is just not poop enough. They don't, that they don't, the, they, they need to the poop. Bottom line. They need to poop for more coral nutrition. Yes, they need to poop a lot. <laughs> but let, let me give you one example. If you're holding a frozen cube, and then if you're feeding your tank that cube per day, your fish is not going to poop the same amount of, of organic material in that day. <clears> unless that in a 100-gallon tank, you have 300 fish. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so uh, if just relying on the fish poop and pee, probably not enough. And uh, I also, I watch a, a live stream that uh, there's an interesting question being brought up is that uh, how many fish do you have in a tank to be able to fertilize your coral? Uh, uh, some, some people said like uh, one fish per uh, 10 gallon or maybe one fish, something like that. 
but I think that you probably need more than that. <clears throat> the the reason for that is that that even just one cube of frozen food, the amount of new nutrition packed inside it, it your fish just probably poop for a week. <laughs> Cannot generate that much seriously. So. So if just rely on poop and pee, probably not enough. Rich uh, Columbus says, I should feed them my wife's cooking. They'll poop all day. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Classic. But by the way, that homemade frozen food, that is the best thing you can get. Quick, uh, quick, um, um, Dong, in terms of that homemade uh, frozen mm -hmm. food, what are, you, what are your key ingredients there? Okay. So the number one key ingredient is salmon fish. Let me tell you this. If you go to a pet shop, grab all the frozen food from the freezer, look at the ingredient, you probably won't find salmon there. The reason for that is that they're expensive. Yeah. They're very expensive. Well, uh, in terms of uh, making commercial frozen food, because well, when I take class on the, uh, uh, those, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, the, the MBA business, those kind of class, I learned something, just listen to oh, some of the yeah, class. Yeah. Okay, they said that if you're, you have a product on the market, if your manufacturer cost greater than 10% of this product, of your retail price, this is not a successful product. So that $10 packs of frozen food, the costs have to be controlled below $1. That's including your packing, shipping, storage, cost, everything. That is why you don't find salmon in those frozen food because they're expensive. They are most of the fish are white fish. <laughs> that strip of the dock, cheap white fish. But salmon has several benefits. One of them is very rich in um, the fatty acid, like omega-3 omega, fatty acid, yeah. ah, fat, or fish oil. So, and actually, Fish oil is really important, very beneficial uh, to coral. So using salmon as your homemade frozen food, that is a key ingredient. That's your holy grail ingredient. And that's it. Salmon. Raw salmon. And Actually, uh, shrimp too, right? Yeah, and shrimp. Raw shrimp. I just add some variety. For example, that the, well, just for the benefit of myself, if I think that I keep feeding one ingredient to my fish, it seems... Kind of boring, it makes you happy, right? right? Yeah, exactly. It makes me happy. <laughs> so I throw in some shrimp. And if Maki Basket has a scallop on sale, I throw in some scallop. <laughs> um, the major ingredient is raw salmon. So John Wright's asking, are we talking about commercial bread salmon? Does it really matter? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but, uh, well, yes, and I, I, I don't know. Because I use both. Uh, the, then they, <laughs> I don't see any difference. And, but on the other hand, I always use raw salmon. You know why? Because the, our local market basket has something called salmon bits. They're, they're salmon pieces. Cheap. All of cheap. All of them are raw. <laughs> but that's a wild salmon. <laughs> so that is the ingredient I use. But I really don't believe that there's uh, too much difference there. Gotcha. Um, all right, last question for you, Dong, and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, amino acids, do we need to dose okay. that? Okay. Uh, it depends on uh, what you're feeding your tank. For example, that um, I found out that after feeding my homemade frozen food, amino acid does nothing. Amino acid, I, I dose it or not, 
absolutely no difference. For matter of fact, a lot of these frozen food have sufficient amount of amino acid in there. There's really no reason to add more. And if you look at the scientific evidence, the amount of amino acid, <clears throat> when we talk about the free floating amino acid, the free form amino acid, that coral can take in a minuscule, very, very small amount. Well, even that small amount, you may be, you, you, you do something, you benefit a little bit. But now, when you're feeding homemade frozen food, you have more than sufficient amino acid bombarding your tank. You don't need to spend your money on amino acid. And, but amino acid, there's another thing about commercial amino acid. Commercial amino acid, they have a heavy loading of glutamic acid or aspartic, uh, 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 mostly glutamic acid. So that way that when you feed the amino acid in your tank, your coral polyp open up, give you some enjoyment. Does it really do anything? No, it doesn't. But when you add those things, they give you a response. Voila, you suddenly feel like your $30 is well spent <laughs> because you can see your coral open up. But does it really does anything to the coral? Hell no, nothing. It just <laughs> it is a hobby, enjoyment. So the bottom line is that if you're running a low nutrient method, which doesn't exist, there's no such thing as nutrient, low nutrient tank. It's untestable nutrient tank. That's what we should say. And maybe you do some amino acid may help. Actually, the benefit is more on you than on the coral. Because yeah. after you dose it, you feel better. <laughs> Psychological <laughs> again, Dunk. Psychological. Um, one, one last question. We'll throw in one more last question from Big ES. And this is a good one. Okay. Um, that uh, we've talked about in this live stream. Do frozen foods contribute to more bacterial infections? Can you get a bacterial infection by feeding frozen food? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Now, let me tell you why. So uh, the one major thing is a vibrium, right? That, that's what aquabiobiomic found is a lot of kind of vibrium. Uh, vibrium, yep. Uh, yeah, and good and bad. And fish gut is heavily loaded with vivium. Basically, that's a predominant of uh, bacterial in fish, in all the ocean fish guts, okay? So that, including the pathogenic, the bad type, uh, and a good one, a beneficial one, but a beneficial one probably does nothing to your coral. It's not, it's not the same biological process, but the bad one definitely can infect your coral. So a uh, lot of commercial frozen food actually including fish gut, the intestines, everything, uh, the, the gill. Now we are talking about parasite. So uh, the liver, so that uh, by infesting, uh, infecting your coral and your fish with commercial make frozen food is absolutely a reality. It's not a hypothesis, it's a reality which I see over and over again. Can you uh, prevent it by like microwaving that frozen food? No, you cannot because now you just cook it. Because that that you lose all the nutrition value for your frozen food. <laughs> that, there's a lot of nutrition value for frozen food actually coming from uh, uh, many of these uh, uh, bacterial whatever things on it, and also the, the 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 protein. So the raw fish, basically, cooked fish has much less nutrition value for your coral than raw fish, as well as to your your. The, the fish in the tank, yeah. the uh, coral and fish both. So you microwave them, no, it doesn't do much at all. And also you have to microwave itself 
does not kill the bacteria. It's the heat, the microwave, uh, make the, 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 the frozen food heat up. That's the heat kill the bacteria. But if you get enough microwave to kill the, uh, the bacteria, your food is already well cooked. Yeah. Well done. So <laughs> microwave does not work. Uh, and also the thing, yes, absolutely. You can infect your fish and coral with disease, parasite, virus, bacteria by using frozen food. That is where the homemade frozen, frozen food come from. Uh, important thing, no intestine, no gut, just salmon fresh. Filet, just the fillets. Just the fillet, salmon fillet. That's what it is. Actually, preferably, is the belly part, which which the, the really uh, fatty part. That's the part you want. And that's the part that Market Basket sells to, to people cheap. That, not, the, <laughs> not, not the actual guts, but the, you're talking about the filet around the uh, belly? Uh, the, the belly. The, 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 skin around the belly? Yeah, the, 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 the belly meat. Belly meat, okay, meat. gotcha. Yeah, belly yeah. meat. Uh, so that's why homemade frozen food um, does not contain any of these intestines because that, that's where all these harmful bacteria live. And also freezing preserve those bacterial virus and parasites. Interesting. Yep. Well, that, uh, that kind of, um, that's a whole nother thing to un, um, you know, to <laughs> unpackage there and, and delve into, but, uh, Don, listen, and, and do, go ahead. Uh, uh, one more thing is that, do you know what's the mo major benefit is third cheap. Yes. For example, the, yeah, the salmon is what, uh, the, the $7, $8, $11 a pound of meat, no dirty water. So commercial frozen food, you are talking about paying fifty to seventy dollar per pound of dirty water. Yes. Yep. Yes, there is a lot of yep. water frozen in to that food yeah. for sure. <laughs> well, Dong, you have uh, given everybody a lot to think about as as usual, and and uh, I know your um, your insights and knowledge are very much appreciated by myself and all the folks out there that have. Uh, tuned in so i want to thank you again dong for um for joining us live and and i look forward to having you back on again in the future so um for those of you in the northeast that are ever in the boston area you should <laughs> definitely check dong's place out um you do ship uh i know as well and uh you can connect with dong on on the boston reefer society website he's a sponsor of the club and he has a sponsors forum so just um go to bostonreefers.org right dong Yep. Yep. Thank you, Keith. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. All right, Don. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this show. And I want to thank you again for being <laughs> on the live stream. I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the uh, live stream. And also want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in and participating via the chat. Really appreciate it. Also want to thank Paul, the moderator, who's also the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. Finally, I want to let you all know that all episodes of Wrap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrap on the Reef Bum live stream will be back. We're back on to Thursdays, folks. No more uh, Tuesday uh, for a while, at least. But Thursday, June 15th, 7 p.m. next week, uh, Chris Meckley will be back on from ACI. So that will, uh, I'm sure, be another very, very um, fun and fact-filled and uh it's just very interesting live stream with with chris it always is so if you want to check out the full upcoming mm -hmm. schedule of guests 
Visit ReefBum.com under the YouTube section. So until next time, be safe and be well, and we will see you next time.